Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. This is episode nine. I am Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller. Uh, we'll be talking today about a variety of topics. We're going to kick off with a discussion of Apple uh, becoming a mobile virtual network operator, or MVNO. This is a report that came out a few days ago. Apple's since officially shot it down. Um, but we just wanted to talk about why it would and wouldn't make sense for Apple to do something like this. Um, secondly, we'll have our regular feature, the question of the week. And this week, Aaron is going to be tackling that. The question is, what is the law of large numbers and does it apply to Apple? This is something that gets raised a lot in relation to Apple and its growth and its stock price. And it's something that Aaron has some interesting views on. So he's going to talk us through that. And then our third topic will be the numbers that Apple released this morning. We're recording this on Thursday morning. Uh, Apple released some numbers around Apple Music, said it had 11 million subscribers. And we'll talk about that number, what it means, and put it in context. And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And it's my turn to do that this week. And I'll be recommending a, a singer and uh, an album uh, that she released a while back. So we'll kick off with our discussion of this Apple MVNO story. And if you haven't read it, it was uh, reported by Business Insider um, a few days back. They reported that Apple was supposedly actually trialing this. Um, it's not the first story about Apple doing a mobile virtual network operator. Um, that actually came out quite a number of years ago when some patents were filed around this. Uh, but this story suggested that Apple was actually trialing it both in the US and in Europe. Uh, and Apple took the unusual step later this week of actually shooting it down officially. So there's an official statement from Apple saying we are not working on this, um, which is unusual, as I say, for Apple when it comes to, to rumors and reports. But Aaron, perhaps we can start by just talking about kind of your initial reaction to all this. Did it? Were you skeptical right from the beginning? Did it kind of seem plausible to you? Uh, I was a little bit skeptical. I mean, the, it was a pretty tame rumor. Right, because it essentially said that Apple was testing this thing out, and and behind the scenes, I'm sure t Apple's testing out all kinds of stuff. I, I was a little skeptical of the source. Uh, I don't know. I I don't know Business Insider to have a super strong reputation as far as Apple rumors are concerned. But I, I think what made it believable is just that is was the assertion that Apple was actually trialing this. That it wasn't sort of working on it internally. A trial means they actually have devices out in the wild, you know, that are doing what the MVNO that Apple had designed would do. Um, so it, for me, it was kind of a mixed bag reaction. Um, I think one of the most negative reactions I got was why network operators would allow Apple to do what it was rumored that they were doing, which is the switching in the same way that Google Fi works. Because um, right, if I understand Google Fi correctly, the way it works is you your phone will switch between Sprint and T-Mobile networks depending on the quality of signal and the speed of the data connection. Is right. my understanding that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. Yeah, and Wi-Fi is another major component with Google Fi specifically too. Right, yeah. So if you're on Wi-Fi, then it uses that. You know, to, to involve multiple carriers, I, I could see why T-Mobile and Sprint would be willing to do this little test with with Google because, you know, they're... They're, they're they're trying to catch up to AT and T and and Verizon and they're going to be more willing to try stuff like that, right? The uh, you know, but I could never imagine why Verizon, for example, would get on board with with something like that. It, it's kind of a network operator's worst nightmare, right? Because I mean, they already are trying to fight you know the the pressure to become a dump pipe, and this sort of thing just is the epitome of that. 
Yeah. Imagine an Apple in Vienna where you could switch between all four major network carriers. They would just be they would just be pipes. That's all they would be. And I, th- I think in many ways that would be their worst nightmare because it would essentially take away a huge chunk of control that they have right now. Right, and really the only measure of control they have over Apple devices, that's the other thing. I mean, with a lot of other devices, the Android devices and so on, you know, the carriers get to customize those quite heavily in terms of the software and the services that get preloaded on them, and, you know, they get to slap their carrier stickers on the front of the actual devices and so on, and Apple steadfastly refuses to allow them to do this. So really the only measure of control that the carriers really have around iPhones is that they're the biggest channel for actually selling those devices um, and that they provide the connectivity and have the ongoing customer relationship with you. Um, and yeah, to, to my mind, there are kind of two parts to why this doesn't really make sense. One is, you know, would Apple really want to get into this business? And the other is, would the carriers let it? And that's the whole thing about this MVNO model. In the US, the carriers are not required to support uh, MVNOs. They, they do it if they choose to. And, and as a result, they usually only choose to when they feel like it will allow them to reach a niche of customers that they can't do well or can't do profitably themselves. And so, you know, Google Fi is kind of an example of that. It's a pretty marginal service. It only works with a single device, the Nexus 6, which is unusually large, even by today's smartphone standards, and uh, which you'd have to pay for outright if you wanted to use it with Google Fi. Uh, It doesn't support any other devices because they don't support the switching between carriers. Um, but, you know, Sprint T-Mobile wanted to support it precisely because it's kind of marginal, um, whereas, you know, Apple is far from marginal. You know, it's not mm-hmm. only very large in terms of scale, but it's also basically the most attractive customers that the carriers have. They're the lowest churn, so they're least likely to leave the carrier. They're the highest spending. They have the highest usage um, because iPhones tend to drive the highest usage. Um, you know, these tend to be wealthier customers and so on. So these are all the customers the carriers most want to have themselves and would be least likely to allow to go somewhere else. And so that's the challenge for me is, you know, why would the carriers support it? As for why Apple would support it, that's the other question. Is that, okay, I can see that, you know, Apple generally wants complete control end-to-end over the stuff that it does and the carrier part is the one part they don't control with iPhones right now and yet it's probably the part that their customers are most frustrated about. But at the same time, getting into this business is a huge step. You know, you have to have massive amounts of customer support. You know, Apple has a network of retail stores, but, you know, he's got a couple of hundred in the U.S. versus several thousand for the carriers. How would you support uh, people with their service? You know, how would you allow people to pay their bills? Uh, Would it be online only? Would you have to do some kind of third-party support? There's all kinds of logistical stuff that just doesn't feel right. And at the same time, you know, even if you could get one or two of the carriers to agree to it, you're basically taking your best current channel, not just for iPhones, but increasingly for things like iPods, iPads, excuse me, as well, uh, and really uh, ruining that relationship to a great extent. Um, The equation is somewhat different in Europe, where carriers have fewer exclusives and and there are other third-party channels and so on. But it's still just didn't ring true for me right from the start from both an Apple perspective and from the carrier's perspective. Yeah, it takes kind of a perfectly balanced scenario for this to work. And and the way I see that balance happening is this would be a huge distinctive advantage for the iPhone, right? If you bought an iPhone and you had the best of all four networks wherever you were in the country, I, I think that would drive a ton of, of iPhone sales. But in exchange for that, Apple has to take on the customer service burden like you were talking about. They have to convince the networks to relinquish the control they have over their customer base. Um, You know, the carriers are still trying to figure out ways to monetize their clients outside of just the regular monthly subscriptions. You know, with add-on services, insurance plans, all that kind of stuff. 
and they would be relinquishing all of that as well. And and so, you, you know, it would take such a perfectly balanced scenario where the carriers would be willing to hand off the cost of customer support and Apple gaining enough in iPhone sales to be able to compensate the carriers sufficiently for them to be willing to do that. It, it, it would take a perfectly balanced equation and with so much to, that's uncertain about that, I have a hard time imagining everybody involved being comfortable with the risk involved. Right, absolutely. So, so yeah, it, you know, and it's a shame too because it is kind of like a dream come true for most mobile users to have the best of every network. Um, you know, Apple's pretty fantastic when it comes to customers, uh, customer support. I think it's a distinctive advantage they have, uh, you know, because the, the network carriers they they are very typically ranked very low in customer support you know the only they just they they only get away with it because they're all ranked against each other right but there's there's companies generally when it comes to customer support they don't do great and and so for 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 iphone users it would be awesome um but it just seems so risky and kind of out there i have a hard time imagining everybody involved pulling the trigger on it yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And the other thing is, I mean, this is a bit like TV services, which we've talked about in the past, but it's not the kind of thing you could do globally. You know, you'd have to do it country by country by country. You know, the U.S. is obviously a major market for Apple, but, you know, in order to launch in several countries, they'd have to have the same kinds of agreements with carriers in each of the countries they wanted to launch in. They'd have to have the customer support infrastructure and everything else. So it's not like you could just launch and be done. You know, you'd have to put a heck of a lot of work in and much more than it requires for, say, licensing music rights or TV rights which is something that Apple has to do for iTunes and so on anyway. Um, you know, it's much more involved than that, um, especially from an infrastructure perspective. And one of Apple's big advantages is they haven't, have to ha- they haven't had to have a lot of their own infrastructure in the countries where they operate, and, and for the most part, got retail stores and a little bit else. Uh, but a lot of their distribution and so on has been handled by third parties, and that would not be the case with something like an Apple MVNO. Um, any other thoughts on this MVNO topic? I think another reason I have a harder time imagining it is because I think Apple has other lower hanging fruit as far as iPhone growth is concerned. I mean, China is still a massive market that I feel like Apple has kind of barely scratched. Um, It's starting to make moves into India next. Uh, I just feel like as far as iPhone growth is concerned, they've got a lot of other places that they can go and and places where they can focus their resources because apple you know as big as they are it gets resource constrained and we've seen that historically where you know software updates have been pushed back or you know products have been delayed because apple takes its resources and focuses and it's a I have a hard time imagining apple putting a whole bunch into this now when they have a lot of other ways to get iphone growth also just by competing more directly against Android. And it seems like they're starting to do that more like with the, if it's not an iPhone campaign. Right. Um, anyway, it just seems like there are cheaper, more effective ways to get more people buying iPhones. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's always interesting. It's one of those stories that resurfaces every few years and I'm always hugely skeptical about it. But you know, you never know at some point, as you say, the stars might align such that they can finally do it. But I, I continue to be skeptical for the time being. <laughs> Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, and, and the question this week is, 
What is the law of large numbers and does it apply to Apple? And the reason for asking this question is just this is something that's talked about, it's bandied about as so many terms are in relation to Apple with many people not really understanding what it means or how it does or doesn't apply. And so Aaron spent some time digging into this this week. Um, and uh, so he's going to help to answer this question for us. And uh, as a reminder, Aaron's a, a business school professor, so he's bringing some of that uh, know-how to bear on this topic specifically. Um, but uh, he has some interesting thoughts about um, both that and some related stuff that we'll get into as we go through this topic. But I think the best place to start, Aaron, is probably if you help define for us what the law of large numbers actually is and says. Sure. Um, so typically, especially when you hear it talked about in reference to Apple, the law of large numbers is paraphrased as the idea that outliers eventually tend back to the mean. So if you have um, a phenomenon that is a statistical outlier, eventually that's going to gravitate back to the mean over time. That's the way the law gets paraphrased, and it's unfortunate because that's an incorrect paraphrasing of how the law of large numbers works. What it actually means is it's a statistical phenomenon, which essentially says that if you have repeat trials, okay, so if you do the same thing over and over again, and each trial has the same probability, well, for a given set of trials, for a, a, a set of a small number of trials, you could have dramatic outliers. So an example that people like to use when they're illustrating this is the flipping of a coin. Over 20 trials, you could get, you know, 15 uh, times where heads comes up instead of tails. And that's obviously far away from the average of a fair coin being 50% heads, 50% tails. The law of large numbers says that the more times you flip a coin, the average of those coin tosses is going to reach 50%. So if you flip a coin 20 times, the chance of it being 50-50 is actually not as high as when you flip a coin a thousand times, where the average across those thousand coin tosses is going to be much closer to 50% heads, 50% tails. Uh, the reason that difference matters is because um, we, we sometimes look at outliers and, and our instinct is to say, oh, they're just going to crash down back to the mean. So we do that sometimes with athletes. For example, when they're performing above expectations, um, it's a problem because you don't know. So there are a couple of reasons that example deviates. One is you don't know uh, what the average expected performance is. What, what, what should the average be? You don't know that probability in the case of like an athlete. And so to expect them to crash down to the mean of all players is, is actually, if you think about it, an unreasonable expectation. Because if we expected all athletes to be average, you wouldn't have a LeBron James, right? Right. And so, so when you, you're actually, what, what happens is people look at outliers and expect them to be average. And it's an unreasonable expectation because the probability associated with the outlier could actually be higher than the average or lower than the average. Right. So that, that kind of brings us nicely on to, to Apple, which in some ways has been kind of the LeBron James of the markets that it's in over the last few years. And, you know, why, why do people apply this thing to Apple and are they applying it correctly or are they misunderstanding what the law really means? I think LeBron James is a great is a great analogy for Apple because a lot of people love him and a lot of people hate him. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, but um, 
You know, it, it, what's happening with Apple is people, th when they take the paraphrased version of the, the law of large numbers, the incorrectly paraphrased one, they think, well, this is a big outlier. It's got to crash back to the mean eventually because something that big can't continue growing, uh, can't uh, continue outperforming. But the truth is we don't have a reason to know that that's the case. If we look, we don't know what, what the average probability ought to be for Apple. It, we, we can know the average for the market, but it's the same problem that we were just talking about with athletes. If, if every company was supposed to tend to the mean of the market, then there would be no outperforming companies ever over time. And that's kind of a ridiculous expectation. Of course, there are companies that outperform because a competitive, a competitive landscape means that some people are going to do better than others. And so <clears throat> when, it, when applied to Apple, the, the truth is we just don't know what, what Apple's average performance ought to be. With a coin toss, we do. <clears throat> so a statistician can say with confidence, look, over a thousand coin tosses, the average performance over time is going to be 50% heads, 50% tails. Because we don't know the expected probability for Apple, any guesses about what it ought to be based on, for example, the average performance of other companies, is is in large part a guess. I mean, for some people, it's a, an informed guess. I mean, we can look at like the strong dollar, for example, and how that might negatively affect Apple's growth right now, just like it is if negatively affecting the growth of all of the U.S. companies that are exporting. Um, but at the same time, you know, that's not going to tell us anything close to the entire story, because there are just way too many variables to consider such as, uh, you know, how big of a difference an iOS update is going to make or, or what the next iPhone is going to look like and what features are going to make a difference for people. There's no way to know an average probability when it comes to Apple's performance as a, as a company. And without being able to know that, insight, like in, invoking the law of large numbers is, is, essentially, is nonsensical. Right, so. you're missing kind of one of the key inputs to the whole calculation, I guess, in some ways. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've, I've done some analysis in the past looking at margins, so profit margins for uh, various companies in consumer electronics. And what you do when you do that exercise is you see you know, Apple way up in the sky, essentially, um, and everybody else down sort of low single digits or slightly negative in terms of margins in consumer electronics. And Samsung's been kind of the one exception to that or one other exception to it and yet over the last several years what we've seen is, is Samsung apparently kind of reverting to the mean and I think that's the challenge here to some extent is that people see Apple as just another consumer electronics company and they perhaps don't appreciate the differences in Apple and its business model compared with the rest of of that industry do you think that's true I do and in fact I think it creates a really weird dynamic as far as the market for Apple shares is concerned because that market has a has a totally kind of it's, it creates a weird set of expectations. So, for example, one of the ways that you can measure the value of a company or the value of its stock is its price to equity ratio. And right now, I'm looking at the chart. Right now, Apple's PD ratio is thirteen point two four. And for the S and P five hundred, and I haven't checked right now, but for the S and P five hundred, when I looked yesterday, it's a little over twenty. Right. And so the multiple is just completely different for Apple. Right. It's strange, right? Because uh, a lower PD ratio means that the stock is probably undervalued. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, uh, you know, Apple has fantastic margins. It has a ridiculous amount of cash, uh, which is part of what feeds into the PD ratio, which makes it even sort of stranger in Apple's right. case. Right. I mean, if you were to liquidate Apple, 
right? Mm-hmm. There would be $200 billion to pass that to shareholders. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so there, there really, it, this, this misconception of the law of large numbers creates a, a, a weird set of expectations for Apple because everybody's, everybody's constantly expecting Apple to crash back to the mean. And therefore, any time it doesn't sort of blow expectations out of the water, people take that as evidence that it is that the the, the crashing back to the mean is starting. Right, right. Um, They're very it, jumpy about Apple in particular. It seems like there's there's kind of a real sort of panic mentality anytime things go downhill at all. Yeah, and it's weird because I just read this morning that Apple, relatively speaking, has a lower number of institutional investors. Than, uh, than a lot of other stocks have. And, and I think it's in part because of this, this misconception about uh, you know, what the average is for Apple and what ought to be. Ex- it, it really is just when you have this flawed set of expectations, right, that Apple can't continue to grow, you know, a quarter of, of less than expected growth, even if it's phenomenal growth, is still disappointing. Right, right. It's all about context. So you and I have talked about another idea that you think may be appropriate to this whole discussion of of how people respond to kind of valuations of Apple in particular and and looking at their future performance. Do you want to talk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So there's another phenomenon in the research called the gambler's fallacy. And um, this comes out of a a branch of study called behavioral economics, um, which is looking at sort of the patterns of irrational behavior that people engage in. And the gambler's fallacy is one of those things. And, and essentially what it describes is that uh, when people see an outlier, they expect it to crash back to the mean unreasonably. So f- so take, for example, this idea. Let's say I was flipping a coin and I got heads five times in a row. Y- you know, your instinct tells you what, Yan, that the next coin toss would be. Right, and tails is going to be finally going to be back to the normal pattern. It, it, exactly, and and this is a great example of the gambler's fallacy. Everybody thinks that instinctively, but statistically speaking, it's still a fifty-fifty chance of heads and tails on the next coin toss. The next toss is independent, Stati- like prob- uh, it, it, the probability of the next coin toss is independent of all the previous ones. Right. There's no sort of magic tying it back to previous probabilities. In fact, it's a misunderstanding of the previous probabilities because they've already happened and they're in the past. Their probability is one. It's already happened. Right. Right. <laughs> so there's no undoing that. Mm-hmm. And so going forward, the probabilities are all independent. Um, what happens is the gambler's fallacy, another way to think of it, is that people take people take the law of large numbers and then out of it they craft a law of small numbers where they say over a small number of series, we should see a tendency to the mean, but that's not true. But the reason it's called the gambler's fallacy is because this is a this is actually a well-researched phenomenon that occurs in casinos, where if a particular, let's say there's a roulette table that has been paying out where people have had a lot of success, uh, a lot of gamblers will avoid that table. So they see a really hot table, they think to themselves, well, this table has to crash back to the mean, so I'm going to go find a cold table, a table that hasn't paid out in a while. I'm going to do my gambling there because the cold table eventually has to start paying out. People also, also do this with slot machines, even though slot machines have independent probabilities for each poll. Um, they still think if a slot machine hasn't paid out in a long time, it must come due not recognizing that each pull on the slot machine lever is an independent trial with an independent probability. 
And so, uh, so this actually works in favor of casinos um, because it induces people to gamble more um, and to gamble irrationally. Casinos benefit from the law of large numbers because they have thousands and thousands of trials going on an hour. And they can fix the probability to pay them out slightly ahead of the people who are gambling. Um, but gamblers don't have the resources to use the law of large numbers in their favor. And even if they tried to, they'd be on the losing end of the percent of the probabilities there. Now, the way this kind of applies to Apple, the gambler's fallacy is people see Apple doing really well and then they think, oh, Apple has to crash back to the mean. So Apple is, in essence, the hot table in Vegas. Right. And when it gets hot, people get nervous, and so they walk away from it. And then the same is true on the cold end. If if uh, Apple stock has been languishing, people think, oh, it must be turning around. Uh, what's funny about Apple that I think makes it unique in this regard, so like I said, this is really well-researched, and research also shows in behavioral finance that institutional investors tend to be a little more immune to the gambler's fallacy in the way that they invest versus retail investors. Um, you know, people who are, you know, buying individual shares on their own. Is, is that because they're more rational or is there some other reason behind that? Well, yeah, the authors couldn't quite, you know, I mean, the study didn't go that far as to figure out why that was the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's likely that they're more rational, that right. they, they, they take a more methodical approach and they're sensitive to this. But that's what makes Apple kind of a weird outlier is because Apple having become so big so fast Mm-hmm. Um, I think even institutional investors are dubious about this, or at the very least, they think everybody else is going to be dubious about it, which means the price of the stock is going to go down, right? I mean, even if I think Apple's going to do great, right. if at the same time I think everybody else thinks Apple's going to do poorly, then that means Apple is being held to a different standard as far as its stock valuation is concerned, and I'm not going to be as capable in selling my Apple shares when the time comes. Right. I mean, that's the hardest thing about Apple in particular, but to some extent all stocks, is you're less about predicting the future of the company than you are about predicting the future of how people will want to buy and sell the shares. And obviously, in many cases, those two are connected. But in the case of Apple in particular, you're trying to second guess the somewhat irrational behavior of other shareholders as as much as you're trying to guess what Apple itself might do and report in future. That's right. And as long as as long as other people have these weird expectations about Apple, the kind that makes a, you know, a thirteen point two price equity ratio accurate when the S and P's you know at over, an over twenty PD ratio, it uh, it definitely you know makes it hard for investors to know how, how to buy Apple shares because they don't know what everybody else is thinking. Right. One other thing that, that we talked about was, you know, obviously we talked about the law of large numbers in relation to Apple and, and it's, you know, the largest company in the world by market cap today and so on. Um, but we've talked about other large companies and, and there's a history, obviously, of this. Apple isn't the first company to become the largest company and to, to kind of suffer from these sorts of associations that people have with that. So can you talk to us a little bit about some other large companies throughout history and, and you know, what's happened there? Yeah, well, that's the funny thing is that Apple is the largest company in the world today measured by market cap, but there are a lot of other measures where it's not the case. It's not the largest company by revenue. It's not even close, actually. It's not the largest company by, um, you know, because there are other companies that have a ton more revenue. They just have much thinner margins than Apple has, like Walmart, for example. Um, They're not the largest company uh, in terms of just assets. Uh, We already talked about how, you know, in fact, you wrote a piece about the, mobile care about all the mobile carriers and how they have these massive infrastructure investments mm-hmm. you know apple just doesn't own that much other than a huge pile of cash right <laughs> they, i mean they don't own that much 
that 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 many physical assets like a lot mm -hmm. of other companies do but also historically apple is not the largest company when you put companies valuations in real dollars um the uh, uh for, for example in the late 90s microsoft hit its high in terms of uh of, of its market cap um which at the time i want to say if i remember right was uh, gosh i can't remember the number but in real dollars like inflation adjusted dollars microsoft in the late 90s had a bigger market cap than apple has now right uh, okay. historically in the united states other u.s companies have been bigger than apple is um when you adjust for when you adjust for inflation mm -hmm. that includes ge and includes cisco and includes intel and so apple is not actually in real dollars which are the dollars we should be using to make this analysis mm -hmm. apple is not the largest company in the history of the united states it's the largest company presently but there have been other bigger companies and then when you go internationally and historically there have been much bigger companies than apple over time um uh, i already mentioned microsoft um, a bunch of oil companies have been really huge and the Dutch East India Company. <laughs> <laughs> going back a Which, bit now. Yeah, we're going back a bit. But uh, but at one point, it had a market cap of over $7 trillion. Wow. And and there's an article where I pulled this from in The Motley Fool. that was written back in 2012, and we'll link that. But, yeah, um, yeah. but it, you know, putting this all in context, it really casts an even harsher light on the misapplication of the law of large numbers as far as Apple is concerned. Because Apple is not... It's it's definitely a historically notable company and has accomplished things that nobody else has accomplished. But in the same way we were talking about LeBron James and how he's this massive outlier within the NBA, um, you know, well, you can't forget Michael Jordan, right? And right, you can't right. forget and Magic LeBron Johnson and Dr. J. Right. right. I mean, going back, there have been other really amazing outlier players. And that's true in in corporations as well even tech companies specifically. Right. So there. So the truth is, it, when we think that the law of large numbers is, is this sort of downward pressure on Apple, it's a misapplication and misunderstanding of it. And if for a number of reasons, one, because it's, you know, not actually applying the law as understood by statisticians. But secondly, historically speaking, there seems to be more room for Apple to grow if you look at how big some other companies have been over time. Right, great. All right, well, we'll wrap up that discussion there, but thank you, Aaron. That's very um, very useful, and we'll link to that article that you mentioned on Motley Fool as well so that our listeners can go check that out, and that will be on the in the show notes on uh, at podcast.beyonddevices. Um, so our third topic is these numbers that Apple just released this morning about the performance of Apple Music in terms of the number of subscribers that it has. Uh, Apple put out a few different numbers this morning, but the, the one that we're going to focus on was that Apple Music has 11 million subscribers. And of course, these are trial subscribers. None of them are paying anything for Apple Music right now. Um, but that's the first number we've had actually from Apple. A couple of weeks ago, there were some reports from Recode and other places about 10 million subscribers. So it seems those are pretty accurate. And that was based on off-the-record conversations with record companies. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> but uh, Aaron, what was your reaction to that number? It was lower than I thought it would be. Yeah, um, I don't here. know if I'm just being over optimistic, but there's so many people already in the iTunes ecosystem. Um, I think I expected more signups, especially because it's a free trial and it's three months long. 
So right. yeah, that was my first reaction. What about you? Yeah, mine, mine too. Absolutely. I was, I was, you know, when I saw that 10 million number, I thought, wow, that can't be right, can it? You know, that when that was reported a couple of weeks ago, and it seems it was right, and that seems shockingly low to me. And a couple of reasons for saying that. I mean, one is, bear in mind that the iPhone base alone is, you know, getting close to 500 million at this point. So, you know, 11 million out of 500 million is about two percent. And maybe you say, okay, well, maybe people just aren't aware of this iOS 8.4 update, and they haven't updated yet, and so they haven't been presented with this new music experience but um, there are various sources out there Mixpanel is an example of this Mixpanel has a regular set of data that it releases about which versions of iOS and other operating systems people are using based on hits to various websites and so on and they reckon that after about I think a week of the launch of iOS 8.4 40% of the iPhone base that was hitting the sites that they track were on iOS 8.4 so it's not an issue where people just aren't upgrading and aren't even aware of it uh, it's there. Maybe they're still not aware of it. Maybe they upgraded just because they saw the little red number one on the settings icon and, and went and updated because they always do that, but they weren't really aware of what it would get them. But it seems like, you know, with the Taylor Swift thing and everything else that's been going on, it seems like general awareness of Apple Music should be pretty high. The risk is very low. You know, this is a free trial. It's three months, not paying anything at all, and it's free music, basically. I'm really surprised that it's as low as it is. Um, and the only things I can think of is one, people don't see the utility in it. Um, they don't understand it. Um, they're worried that you know they, they still have to provide their credit card details and they will get billed when the free trial runs out. And that sometimes puts people off free trials because they're worried they'll forget to cancel. Um, but yeah, it just it's surprisingly low to my mind. It was a lot lower than I was expecting it to be. You know, the other thing that might be holding people back is uh, that the market for streaming music may not be as high as everybody thought. Um, now that's, uh, uh, I guess that remains to be seen that, you know, Spotify built up slowly and maybe Apple Music just has to expect that to be the case. Uh, although, I mean, I say slowly, but 11 million subscribers to Apple Music, even if it is free over just a two month period is, 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 historically big I don't I mean there's been no other streaming service to grow as quickly as that but the other problem is we don't know how many of those 11 million are going to convert are going to convert right. into paid users yeah. when the time comes yeah and we won't know that until we've talked about this before we probably won't know that until January to be honest because that's the first time Apple will report a quarter in which these subscribers have to start paying um, you know, they may give us an update on the number of free subscribers or something between now and then, and maybe at one of the sort of September, October events, they'll, they'll give some kind of update on it. But um, from a financial reporting perspective, we probably won't get a really good sense until January. Um, but it's interesting. I mean, we've now had, you know, Apple Watch numbers that came out a couple of weeks ago with earnings. Um, they didn't come out directly, but we kind of interpreted them. Um, and now Apple Music, both of which were somewhat lower than certainly I was expecting, and I think than, than other people were expecting too. Um, you know, having said that, you know, you take a step back and you say, what's the largest number of smartwatches anybody else apart from Apple has sold? Right. And obviously it dwarfs that number. What's the largest number of subscribers any other streaming music service has signed up within, you know, two months of launch? And obviously, um, again, the 11 million dwarfs that. So it's all about context to some extent. Um, but, you know, with a ceiling of something like half a billion iPhone users, it really felt like me, felt to me as if Apple should have had quite a lot more subscribers than that by now and I wonder if with new iPhones in September with iOS 9 going publicly available if they'll do a really big push around this um, one of the things that was interesting was in some interviews today ADQ was kind of saying we know there have been some bugs and some problems with the way that the app performs and we're not happy with that and we want to improve it and so I do wonder whether 
there will be an element of waiting until they can get the experience really, really good before they start pushing it very hard. But they've already got billboards and things up in, in certain cities um, this week uh, advertising Apple Music. So, you know, it feels like they're, they're not exactly kind of keeping quiet about the service for now. Yeah, they do. It, you know, and th- th- I feel like this has the potential to feeding into the narrative that Apple is flattening. I mean, staying on theme here with the law of large numbers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you look at, you know, the watch sales seem to have disappointed a lot of expectations, even though, like you said, that they sold more smartwatches than anybody ever has in such a short time. Or actually, in this case, more than anybody ever has ever. (laughs) Right. But, you know, it's the same thing with Apple Music. I mean, 11 million subscribers, even if they are free over a two-month period, Spotify's free listeners never grew that fast. And and that's ad-supported, and so it has less conveniences and... um, you know, I, I guess the point is Apple, 11 million might be really amazing. We just have no context of knowing how. But I feel like all that's kind of feeding into the lull and that Apple stock is experiencing to the, the you know, disappointing, quote unquote, sales of Apple Watch. I, I just wonder if this is going to accelerate the whole Apple is flattening out kind of theme. And, and Apple got downgraded also, the stock got downgraded yesterday by two analysts, um, largely because I guess there are two rumors floating around. One, that um, that orders for the, for the 6S are lower. The orders from suppliers, you know, are rumored to be lower, about 10% lower than the 6 was last year. And then the other is that, uh, you know, there's not enough confidence in the features that Apple's going to be adding with the 6S. I think Force Touch is probably going to be the marquee feature, and that has a pretty narrow set of benefits. Right. And so... I think I think everybody can expect a narrative that's probably going to last until my guess is, you know, September maybe October. The idea that Apple is kind of losing its mojo again. Yeah, unfortunately, it's one that we see a lot. I mean, these supply chain reports come out roughly once a year in terms of you know what Apple's ordering and and that kind of thing, and they almost always end up being wrong. Um, so we'll see if that you know really does pan out. And obviously, you know, the only sign we'll have of that is. You know, earnings in October and then really January will be the big indicator of how the success is selling. I mean, it makes sense that the success would be somewhat down on um, the six um, just because, you know, the biggest upgrade cycle always comes with the brand new phones as opposed to the sort of S upgrades. Right. Um, but, you know, we're still only one year into a two, what's typically a two year upgrade cycle. There's still lots of people out there that have fives and five S's that are going to want to upgrade. So I, I think it's premature to be writing off the next version of the iPhone and valuing Apple on that basis. But uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to watch how this narrative kind of shifts and evolves over the next few months. You know who this has been a good experience for is my son, Luke. How <laughs> <laughs> so? Well, so he made a bunch of money during the summer doing odd jobs for people, dog sitting and the like. And and our family at one point was having a conversation about investing. And I, you know, he's young enough that he didn't know that he could just buy a share of Apple stock if he wanted yeah, right. or, or stock in any company. And uh-huh. so we were discussing that and he asked if he could buy a share um, with some of his summer earnings. And so we set him up on that new Robinhood app. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it's I guess technically I'm the owner of the stock and I just owe sure. him the money for it. But, yeah. but um, you know, we set him up and... And his stock is down by, you know, 7% or so. But I mean, but the idea was, I said, look, if you're going to buy this, you have to promise me you won't sell it for at least a year. Oh, okay. Just to kind of teach him that investing as a retail investor, you've got to invest for the long term. You can't yeah. day trade because yeah. you'll never win. And yeah. uh, 
and he's committed to that. But as of today, he's down by about $11 on his oh, investment. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, but I, I, I mean, it's, it's actually a fun experience for him. No, it's sure. not. It's fun for me. <laughs> Educational for him. <laughs> so, because, I, I mean, Apple stock is going to go up. I, I don't, sure. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not a financial expert. I'm definitely not giving investing advice, but right. I, I think it's un, I think it's unreasonable to think that it won't be up by this time next year. And yeah. whether or not he chooses to sell at that point, I guess will be up to him. But yeah, yeah. No, interesting. I mean, it's, it's in some ways, you often wish that every investor had that one year rule um, because <laughs> I feel like yeah. so much of the fluctuations in stocks is about very short termist investors. And, you know, a company like Apple, if you look at what's happened to the share price of the last 15 years or something, it's absolutely astonishing. But yeah. so many of the investors are in it for a quarter or even less. And, you know, there's just no point at that. You know, it's pure speculation. You might as well go to the casino, as we were talking about earlier, right. is, you know, invest in stocks on that basis. At least at the but, casino, you have a better sense of what your odds actually are. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, great. It's been a good conversation. Um, we'll wrap up this week's episode with our usual um, final feature, which is the weekly pick. And this is where Aaron and I pick something that we've been enjoying recently and share it with our listeners. And it could be anything from uh, a song to a book to a movie to um, anything else, really, for, for that matter. Um, this week, I've chosen uh, a musical artist and album. Uh, which have the same name as it happens. So the artist is Natalie Press, and her album is called Natalie Press 2, um, and that's P-R-A-S-S. And uh, I came across her a little while back somewhere. I think one of her songs was featured in a commercial, and I, it was quite striking because it was different from most of the songs that you hear. And so I went and looked her up and uh, found that she had this album and uh, you know added it to my sort of streaming library and so on. And um, it, she's got a very interesting voice. It's very high pitched, but I don't want people to get the impression that she's kind of screechy. Um, one one sort of description that a lot of people have applied to her is that she sounds a bit like a Disney princess. Um, <laughs> so she's got this interesting sound where, at least on some of her songs, um, you know, the voice is very high indeed, but it's very kind of crystal clear still, um, and it's quite lovely to listen to. And it's a, it's a fascinating album. It, it's got a lot of instrumental and uh, orchestral type instruments. Uh, going on in the background, um, you know, backing up this kind of very high uh, voice that she has. Uh, a lot of the songs sound like they could come from musicals, which I think further kind of reinforces the Disney princess impression. But they've got a sort of musical sound to them. Um, variety of really interesting topics. I mean, there's several love songs in there. There's one uh, called Christy, which is about the girl who takes her boyfriend away, essentially. And, you know, why did he have to fall in love with the only guy she's ever loved and, and that kind of thing. But there's a whole variety of other ones. The one that I heard on the commercial was uh, It Is You, which is one of the ones where this kind of high voice of hers is heard most distinctly. Um, I'll, I'll try and pick one of these songs and I'll, I'll have it play us out as we finish the episode. But she is Natalie Press. The album is also called Natalie Press. Uh, it's on Apple Music along with uh, various other streaming services as well. So I recommend that you go check that out. That's great. I love stuff like that. I'm excited to listen to her. Yeah, no, it's fun. Um, we are done for this week with this episode. Uh, we thank you for joining us. We'll put uh, links to various things in the show notes, as we always do, and that will be at podcast.beyonddevices, uh, with a dot between the C and the E uh, in devices. Um, we uh, look forward to your comments and questions. As a reminder, you can always submit questions that you'd like us to tackle for future questions of the week. 
Um, if you have any other questions or feedback, let us know. And uh, if you have an opportunity to, please leave us a review as well on iTunes. That helps uh, new people to discover the podcast as well. So thanks for listening as always, and we will be back with you again next week. Hi, it's Jan again. I'm just going to play you out with a track from that Natalie Prass album that I recommended. This track is called It Is You, and it gives you some idea of both the instrumental side of things and her own unique voice as well. The tracks on the album are pretty varied. There's some bluesier stuff too, so don't assume it's all going to be like this, but it gives you a good sense, and it's kind of a fun song, and I'll give you a little snippet of it here. We'll see you next week.